Welcome to VR in Education. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of VR in Education. As teachers, we're often charged with helping students make sense of complex ideas. In this situation, we might start with basic facts and then blend in more sophisticated ideas and, of course, experiences to help form this bigger picture of what we might call the learning landscape. In this way, we form schemata that may provide this epiphany or a light bulb moment for our learners whereby they feel like they've really learned something on a deeper level. Yet providing this type of learning journey can be difficult, often time-consuming back and forth, and not always possible in the classroom. So today on the show, we've invited Anarupa Ganguly. She's the founder and CEO of Prisms of Reality. Anarupa graduated from MIT with a master's degree in electrical engineering, and then she went on to get her master's in education from Boston University. She's wore several educational hats over the years, math teacher, assistant director of K-12 mathematics, and senior director of instruction and professional learning. She's here today to talk about prisms of reality and how they're carving an exciting new path for math and science learning. Welcome to the show, Anarupa. Hi, Craig. Thank you so much for that introduction and for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk more about this. Let's start with your company name, which I thought was really exciting and interesting. How did you come up with prisms of reality? Hmm, That's a good place to start. So prisms of reality, the name is inspired by the idea that our own experiences and inclinations often govern how we make sense of our environment and as a result, our learning. But as we know, for centuries now, there was one prism through which we learned math, that of the teacher. And as we've all experienced, part of the reason why math was a challenge um, is a ch- or can be a challenging subject is because the representations of thinking that the modern math classroom allows, uh, so to speak, can be quite narrow. On the other side, there are so many abstractions in math and the physical sciences that are really hard to visualize, touch, or interact with. So students end up memorizing the formula, not because they want to, or, or not because a teacher has narrowed their sense-making pathway, but because they have no other entry point. So we're really looking to create a learning paradigm where students learn by listening to, exploring, and building on their own intuition or their prism, as we call it fondly here at Prisms of Reality. Mm, I love that. You know, when we look at VR and some of the literature and even research studies, we often hear that thanks to giving you this sense of embodiment and immersiveness that experiences in VR can make things more memorable. Yet, to me, it shouldn't be about how well it'll help us remember something. The real value in learning is to understand something at a much deeper level, which then lets us use it in new situations. 
what are your thoughts on this? Why, why is it always about remembering? Hmm. I would largely agree with you there. I, I think that, you know, I really turned to VR as a medium of learning math because school mathematics boils down to a few things. The discernment of pattern and, pattern and structure in the physical world, and then creating shorthand abstractions that we can easily communicate, manipulate for decision-making and deeper understanding. And unfortunately, kids usually memorize these series of dismembered abstractions, as I, as I call them, and that's kind of what math class has come to, to mean today. Um, and VR provides the opportunity to, to help kids physically experience these structures and these compelling contexts, because that's how we learn best, right? I mean, I think that the adage, uh, the classroom of life, we, we throw these, these kind of words around. So, so we know on a spiritual level that we learn through moving and seeing and touching, um, and so, you know, what VR allows us to do is to really experience these mathematical structures and then to help a child build that sense of abstraction to, so to go up from this 3d environment and then simplify to 2d graphs and tables, which are again, easier to write, easier to com communicate, and then up to that 1d equation. And they very naturally understand that, okay, I understood where this math model came from. And I, and I also understand why this equation is so much easier to communicate to my fellow mathematician versus, you know, recreating this whole experience. Um, and, you know, that, that when you talk about the value of understanding, it's not just understanding the concept, but it's understanding where it came from. And that's that, that's kind of the whole pedagogical arc of building higher levels of abstraction that only a multimodal kinesthetic medium like VR can afford. You know, schools are making a shift and I shouldn't sort of paint this uh, dark picture about it all. You know, they're starting to realize that concepts, these bigger ideas, some of which you've already mentioned, things like patterns, things like understanding sort of uh, progression over time. You know, we call this a more conceptual teaching and learning of um, education. And, and in this model, worksheets are sort of shunned because students fill in a blank and really they're not taught to think deeply thanks to worksheets. But open-ended projects are becoming more the norm. What have you noticed, especially as it pertains to either math and science, about making this shift? One of the things that I noticed is that teachers and a lot of administrators have, have experienced that it's just having a progressive method of teaching, i.e. problem-based or project-based, isn't going to necessarily result in standards-aligned fluency. So what you end up finding is that there's a tension. This is the time where our kids are going to work on these rich projects. This is where we're going to have test prep and they're going to have time to just to acquire the procedures. And I think what where the magic lies is how do we really use these rich problem-based or pro project-driven, you mentioned project-based uh, learning, how do we use that uh, to yield fluency so that we're, we're, we're using prog progressive methodologies that still get us the outcomes that are tied to opportunities because it's very easy for the pendulum to kind of swing back and forth and see these two aspects of the learning experience as disparate. But 
those of us who are trying to really make it one learning experience and a continuum, as you mentioned, I think that's that's going to be a very powerful um, application for schools. When I talk to teachers, a lot of them feel a little bit like, um, I guess frustrated might be the word, in this new model of conceptual understanding because, you know, the beauty, I guess, when it comes to assessment of the old model is that it's uh, much easier and quicker to use this test-based regime to see if students, are they learning it? Let's give them a few multiple choice questions. Let's have them fill in the blank or answer some vocabulary and either it's right or wrong. But as we shift to a conceptual model where you know they have to fully understand a term like changing identity, the messy part is as a teacher, you really have to try and unpack whether the light bulb is going on. So learning concepts is much more difficult. Are you finding that some teachers are feeling left behind in this new approach to pedagogy? Absolutely. Uh, and, and I think, it, you know, as it, it goes back to what happened with the new math uh, revolution in the 80s, right? You had a really well-meaning set of new standards, which were aligned to, you know, all the, the right competencies and, and the right ways of thinking. But the teacher support apparatus and the assessment s- system and structure um, never quite caught up. And teachers were left with these, you know, great but unattainable expectations without the tools. And so if you look at for the Common Core State Standards for Mathematics, PARC, Smarter Balance, these are um, unequivocally better measures of conceptual understanding than their predecessors. But when those assessments were rolled out, majority of the states didn't have a supported transition plan. Um, you had kind of the, you had foundations that were supporting some teacher professional development, but there really wasn't a plan for how do you help teachers not really step in as a learner again because they didn't learn in this way. So to facilitate um, a whole new pedagogy without ever having experienced it in your own education, that's a tall order, and it's going to require some serious um, intention around preparation. And so I think as, as we think about emerging technologies like virtual reality in the classroom, I think there's a page to be taken out of that book around what is that teacher support system, both in terms of onboarding, that continuous support of lesson study and integration, looking at student work, because though the learning tool is different with virtual reality, the teacher preparation and the teacher facilitation of that discussion and the convergence on math concepts and ideas once the children have come out of the VR, none of that changes. Um, it's just the the content dissemination that is now different that really allows that type of sense making that you and I were, were discussing. So I think it's 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 large to say that uh, it suffice to say that um, we can really learn from these past implementations where we didn't set teachers up and teachers were often seen as the problem of like, we have these really great new ways of teaching and the teachers are not, you know, on board. And it was never about that. It was about they weren't given the tools, the space and the preparation guidance to do so. And so really kind of being mindful of that as we try to operationalize a aspirational medium like VR is, is imperative. Speaking of uh, making sense of abstraction or concepts within math, you know, spatial understanding establishing mental models. These are two key concepts that 
being a non-math person that I know some of my friends and then my teacher colleagues struggled with when they were in K-12 schools. But I also remember, even as a math student myself, that we have math manipulatives to try and make abstraction or concepts more understandable. So if we have math manipulatives, do we need VR, which is very much, as you talked about earlier on in this podcast, a medium where kids can pick up things, they can twist and rotate, they can arrange, organize, sort, they can stack, you know, isn't that what math manipulatives were meant to do? Yeah. And and I think that to your point, we do have a lot of math manipulatives for uh, elementary math co- uh, concepts. So for number sense, for fractions, number lines, um, there's a lot of, I mean, if you look at the investigations curriculum, there's a lot of constructivist K-5 curriculum materials. Generally, the elementary grades, you have far less standards. So teachers are really able to hone in and, and use those tools. And what happens is as, as the student goes through the K-12 continuum is, and you get to secondary math and the physical sciences and the APs and IB, where your courses are much more dense. Um, you know, that's where you begin where teachers and instructors just start jumping to the abstraction because they feel like they don't have time. And there isn't, you know, if you look at digital and print materials, there isn't a theory of action for when you get up to higher levels in, in calculus and physics. How do you take a student from tactile uh uh, kinesthetic understandings of a concept up to the math model. There just isn't a model for that. And so that that's really the, the bridge that we're trying to, to, what we're trying, the gap we're trying to bridge at PRISMS, um, where instead of visualizations being seen and in calculus, it's, it's like, oh, they drew a picture and people are excited. And we're really mm-hmm. trying to broaden that. We're trying to think about um, the equation for torque, Faraday's law, all these highly mathematical models, how do we put the pebbles down for a student to really understand the composition of that, how structurally that that mathematical model works, how it reflects the real world phenomena, and most importantly, having them interact with that real world context first to build an intellectual need. Why am I even studying this before they even jump to the set of abstractions that they'll then use to solve a, a myriad of problems? Mm. Put the pebbles down. I love that little saying. I might have to steal and borrow that. You know, you talked about how packed the curriculum is. I remember reading a study uh, about the PISA testing and why Japan scored so much higher in the 90s on mathematical testing, according to this international PISA test. And when they looked at that research article, they noticed that Japanese teachers forced students to work with, and then more importantly, to struggle more with math problem solving. Whereas, as you alluded to, when when the research article compared results to other countries like the United States, it seemed like there was greater necessity within the United States simply to, to do what we call coverage, which is don't spend too much time on that math problem because we've got to move on to more curriculum. Have you noticed a lot that you know, struggle for math learners is difficult? It is. And my experiences tell me that the reason why struggle is hard is because the sense-making tools that students have 
at moments of struggle are so limited. So in in one of the modules that we've built recently, uh, we were testing with a student who got stuck at the point where he had gone through, he had created, um, he had kind of looked through, or, or sorry, worked with these different interactives to understand the math structure. And he was getting to a point where he had to now create the equation. And he struggled. And I was speaking to his teacher afterwards, and she, and she was saying that during any other time, that student would have would have would have given up. And I asked her, "Well, why don't you think he gave up in the VR module? Because he kept going." And she smiled and she said, "Well, he had so many ways to keep sense making. He had the the accordion model where he could, you know, uh, compress and stretch and look at the growth factor again." He could go back to the physical model and go back to what the what the into what intuition he'd built around that pattern. He could pull out his his uh, writing tool to annotate the three D bar graphs. There were so many ways that he could continue in the pursuit of structure and 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 discerning the pattern, and just those opening up those modalities and those humane representations of thought was sufficient for this for the student who otherwise had a tendency to kind of look at a math model and say, I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to enter it. I don't know how to, I don't know how to, to manipulate it. Um, you know, just, just simply having those additional tools was, was a huge value add. Mm. You know, it's so essential. Like what a student feels and then hears, and then of course sees and can do in a VR headset is essential. So VR basically can help tell a story for a student that's more understanding. So as your company builds out VR experiences for math and then maybe science, there's a multitude of grades and curriculum outcome that you guys could could consider. How do you decide where to start? What topic, you know, what curriculum needs more attention and therefore VR help than others? Yeah, so we decided to begin with algebra because, you know, it's an Achilles heel and it's really hard uh, to do well in chemistry or physics or all these other um, uh, science courses without having a strong background in math modeling, specifically algebraic thinking. So we're beginning with algebra, and each course uh, has modules, and they're, they're multi-part modules. In the case of algebra, it has six multi-part modules on linear functions, systems of equations, quadratics, exponential functions, statistics, and trig functions. These are the key topics uh, in, a, in any traditional Algebra 1 class. And each of our libraries are thematic. So as, as I mentioned with Algebra, it's mostly focused on, on, on global citizenry. So how do I use math tools to solve critical problems related to the pandemic, which is our first module? Um, and as we know, the mathematical structure that underlies a, a global pandemic is exponential growth of, of the of the of the infection. Um, for our linear functions module, students look at the melting rate of a glacier and different human inputs and behaviors like drilling and deforestation and fossil fuels um, and how the the melting rates are affected. And then build linear models that they can use to make public policy decisions. What's really important to note here is. All of our learning modules are problem-driven. They're mission-driven. So in the case of our pandemic module, students uh, are in pursuit of the question, how many weeks until our hospitals reach capacity? And the other very important kind of part of, of, of you mentioned like topic as well as the math objective, um, is that we don't want to kind of tell them anything. So we don't say, you know, you should 
use hand sanitizer, you know you should wear masks. The tenor of the modules is we're going to provide a space for you to observe, uh, for you to build math models, and for you to use those to really determine and and, um, and, and make your own decisions. That's that's just an important part um, of of picking up topics that are you know, connected to social policies, because these can very easily become pedantic. And um, the purpose is to sell a policy versus just build that critical thinking. And so that, that's kind of something that's important to us. In terms of the, the curricular objectives, um, our physics mod, uh, library, for example, has a different theme. Um, it's on emerging technologies. And so those modules cover topics like the colonization of Mars, high-speed trains, the future of solar power, and students study these real-world contexts uh, through applying standards-aligned concepts like Newton's law, electromagnetics. Um, so to kind of tie a ribbon on that, all of our libraries focus on the core topics of that, of that course. Um, these topics are usually um, ideas that are more intangible and students have historically struggled um, to make sense of these abstractions. And and what our modules seek to do is help them build that abstraction from a physical experience. Hmm. If someone's new to VR, which is could be deemed, hopefully not, but could be deemed a shiny new toy, a shiny new technology toy, let me paint a picture for you and then you tell me whether this is a a good use case scenario of VR. So I'm, I'm teaching about data visualization and analysis, and I've got eighth, eighth grade students, and I ask them to predict maybe the likelihood of Russia winning a gold medal in U.S. Olympic hockey, which hopefully is unlikely because I'm Canadian and usually it's Canada that wins this gold. <laughs> So students produce a 3D visualization of a bar graph of a number of medals that Russia has won over a series of years. And then they're in VR, so they see this bar graph. They can walk around the bars. They can see it inside VR. They can maybe uh, notice trends and then possibly analyze and predict possible outcomes because they see this data visualization within a 3D space. Is this a good use of VR or what's missing in this scenario? Craig, so can I ask you a question? What is the exact math concept that you want students to understand uh, through this experience? I would say uh, hypothesizing and, and predicting trends in data. Okay. I ask you because there are, there are three key aspects of the pedagogical framework that we've been building at PRISMS. The first is that we create intellectual need to learn that math topic. I think far too many times we you'll have a student say, I have no idea when I'm going to use this. I have no idea where, when, when there's, where, where this would be relevant. I don't know what job would use this. And so uh, one, uh, something that is, that is core Um, to our philosophy is that we want to give them as much exposure to roles and people in the world that actually apply these mathematical tools so that they don't see it as an intellectual exercise. They really see it as a part of the fabric of our society. Um, The second uh, important question I would ask um, before answering this is, what sort of pattern do you want students to build intuition about? So, 
it can this math relationship truly be physically experienced or is what they're going to be looking at essentially just a graph or a table um, that is traditionally 2D and we just kind of put it into 3D and the real value add is just the kinesthetic part of it. So being able to look at it from different angles. Um, And so unless you can really first intuitively experience that structure, experientially, physically, no graphs, no tables, no abstraction. And then once you have that intuition, then we kind of help you build upon that with visualizations and notation. I think that I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to take something that is just a 2D math model and put it into 3D because there isn't much value for that third dimension in that case. And so if I were to, again, summarize what I, what I shared is we only pick examples where you can experience the math structure because I believe that's what's lacking, not just more visualization of things that they can kind of look at pretty, pretty well, um, in a video or a screen or Desmos or other tools that they have today. You know, I was fortunate enough to try uh, your most recent VR application, which you mentioned earlier, Pandemic. And, you know, it takes data visualization and mental modeling to whole new levels. And the reason I say that is, you know, you, you definitely talk the talk and walk the walk because I loved how it told a real story whereby the user, the student is essentially a protagonist and ultimately, as you've talked about before, has to solve the problem of determining how many weeks before a city's hospital beds might become overcapacitated, which on the surface seems like a daunting problem. But as I tried it out, you know, I was really impressed with the experience scaffolds that for me so that albeit it is a challenge, I felt like at the end, I was ready for sort of that final answer uh, and challenge. Do you want to let's talk about pandemic for a bit and, you know, unpack some of the things that are going on in this experience, which has alluded to many of the things you've talked about earlier on in the show. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad that you were able to get in and and you spend some real time in it because to your point, you know, you can jump in and it can, it may look shiny and and um, you know, interesting and it's an, it's new. Uh, but I appreciate that you took time to really understand the soul of what what we're trying to achieve, which is what you said, we're going to take this context that students have been passively watching uh for the past year. You know, one of our test our, our student testers, she said, this was the first time that I wasn't just intellectually learning about, you know, the growth or containment protocols. I got to experience it, you know, when just watching videos in the New York Times and reading about it, it was, it's very different from saying you have a job. Your job is to help us think about how we provide resources to our hospitals. In order to do that, we have to figure out how fast this thing is is growing. And then there's another step in logic of once we understand how fast the virus infection is growing itself, we have to figure out, well, what percentage of of people are going to be in the hospital? Um, And so, you know, really kind of walking students through the steps that one takes to, to, to solve a larger problem. And it's important that the student kind of remains in control and has agency throughout that process. So though... 
our learning assistant, our, our 3D learning agent, she's walking students through the problem. Students still remain at the center of the problem solving structure. And they're the ones who are kind of owning where, where, where that goes. Um, the other thing that I, I felt you know, was really important as we, as we went through building this is that as our flagship module, we were excited to share how you can use IVR in math class. I think virtual reality has, has picked up um, a reputation for being a really great aid for science because of the visualization aspect, um, for arts education, because of the creativity, for empathy training. Um, and I think that, you know, as, a, as somebody with a math background, I immediately saw the value of structural thinking. And so the hope is that people will have a really good understanding of how we're thinking about um, going from an emotional compelled um, problem, like I want to figure out how many weeks it takes for my city's hospitals to be overwhelmed, to patiently stepping through um, and going through the 3D interactivity to the 2D, to the 1D, as I was talking about, like removing one dimension at a time so that once you get to that equation, you're like, I, I know where this came from. It's not scary. I built it. And, you know, we, we were talking about before how the U.S. has, you know, a, a mile wide, inch deep um, curriculum. But you know what I found, Craig, is that that's actually not true. Our, we end up taking so long to eat to teach each topic because it's so memorization driven that, you know, every single unit we're reteaching for a week and a half before the unit test. You get to the end of the year, we have like six and a half weeks for test prep before the end of your exam. And there was this really great moment. I'm sorry I keep going back to kid anecdotes because I think that there's just so much to learn from what they've been telling us. There was this great moment where we were testing with a student at KIPP in Lynn, Massachusetts. He took like 15 minutes to do the pretest. It was arduous. He had taken Algebra 1 and Algebra 2. He was a junior in high school. Um, didn't remember anything from exponential functions, even though he's learned it maybe three to four times by now. Uh, he goes through our modules. He does the post-test within four minutes. It's a different test, but on the same content. Um, and he kind of looks it up, looks up at us and he's like, that was so simple. Like that's all it was all this time. And so I think that there's just a lot of compression that we're going to be able to achieve by, by using this sort of a pedagogical arc that is so foundational. So what's going to seem like a greater investment to, to implement something like the pandemic, um, you're going to, we're going to just see huge efficiencies at, on the other end because we're not going to be reteaching that exponential form over and over again because when a child sees y is equal to b to the x, they're going to remember exactly where that growth rate came from, the visualizations that they used to, to make sense of multiplicative growth versus linear growth, which is additive growth. Um, and just the type of re-engagement is going to be far more efficient and effective. I, I, well, I want to, yeah, I can keep going. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Sorry. I, I was like, I can keep going, Craig. So I wanted to kind of pause and, and get your thoughts. You know, I, I love your passion. Um, one of the things that really struck me and I enjoyed most about it was being able to see all the multitude of people and, you know, click on one of the persons that then got the virus and then watch it spread in three different scenarios. And, and those three different scenarios, we've been hearing on the news 
for months and months and months. And that is, you know, no social distancing, no masking, social distancing. And then the third one, of course, is wearing a mask and social distancing. Those are things that you can't really visualize in the real world. But there I was watching this virus spread amongst these people. And I found myself compelled to 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 watch it over more than once to see some of the patterns of how it spread. And, you know, therein lies, again, going back to the idea of, you know, how quickly are we moving through the curriculum? Well, the, for me, this tool was fantastic because I felt like I could ruminate a bit. I could take my time and watch what was really playing out. And that's where, for me, VR is so amazing. You know, we use the term democratized learning. This truly did democratize the learning for me. And you use the word agency. I agree. I had so much agency in there. And I find I found myself not feeling rushed because it was me, the headset, and the experience. There were no physical distractions outside of, you know, VR that made me think I got to rush through this and move on. That's that's incredible to hear. And and that's exactly what the goal is, is to provide these sense-making tools where you can you know, play it as many times as you need to make sense of the structure on your own terms and then use that intuition um, to kind of build further mathematical models on. And I think students, it's, it's such an underrepresented skill to listen to your intuition, to make observations and to really kind of think about, well, what is what is my initial understanding of this and how do I build from here? Because students never get to understand what their initial thought or belief or reflection is, they just start memorizing things. And all that memorization sits on such a weak foundation. And so I think that, you know, I I, I appreciate that it, it did what it was supposed to do. Mm. I think one of the things I wanted to share that's been a challenge is that, you know, the narrative structure and storyline to, to make sure that, you know, kids are engaged in, in this compelling problem, but also that they learn mathematics and that they learn it in a pedagogically sound way. I think, I think that was quite tough to architect. So kind of going back and forth on script and the sequence of activities and how they're using what tools and to what end is, I think, a really interesting and fun problem in VR design, um, but I would say one of the more challenging ones. And the other thing that I, that I wanted to share, um, especially for, for everybody who's, who's building, building VR for, for STEM right now is that a lot of the, 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 the designs in this early prototype, they, they have hangovers of 2d design, right? So we had a lot of like UI videos and guidance, our, our table and graph tools were still very much 2d. We had an answer console, which is very much a, a 2d design construct. And so we're going through a really worthwhile redesign now, um, where, you know, we're kind of thinking about for all these things that we know a student is going to have to interact with uh, using paper pencil on a, on a 2D test, like a table, like equations. How do we still make sure that the design in VR is taking advantage of all things great about 3D design and interaction while making sure that they're going to be prepared for their assessments that are going to not be in VR? And I think that takes careful consideration around how do you take ideas that students wrestle with in VR and then connect them to notations, conventions, and vocabulary in our offline toolkit that comes post-VR? Because that would be a waste to kind of 
put all the conventional stuff and and notation into the VR experience because that's not really utilizing um, what the medium is is most purposeful for. Mm. Well, breaking immersion is obviously a no-no in VR, yet at the same time, you know, how do you also scaffold the learning? You know, I did notice that you did have some formative questions in your storyline and from a, a usability or a UX perspective, you know, that might, you know, that might be of the belief that, gee, you know, uh, VR time is precious, you know, many schools only have so many headsets, should we really be asking questions within the VR headset when we could get them through the experience, take the VR headset off, and then have them answer either formative or summative questions related to what happened. But, you know, I wanted to ask you, actually, and I'm glad you brought this up. Why did you decide, you know, to do that? Even calculating too, like you offered a calculator inside the VR experience because if they take the headset off and break immersion, that sort of ruins the whole experience. So, you know, talk about those two things. One, the infusion of uh, formative assessment questions within the storyline and then, I guess, other UX considerations. So in my mind, one of the key uh, design features that's going to allow IVR to really kind of flourish in, um, in the current schooling models is the teacher experience, right? And, and how we architect the teacher experience. One of the challenges we've had in general with new solutions and with new tools is that the, the student-facing thing is great, but we haven't spent enough time thinking about what the, what the teacher experience is. And this is very much connected to the formative assessments. Teachers need and use formative assessments throughout their lessons, throughout instructional episodes to make decisions. And if she or he are shut off from the learning process and the student is immersed um, and, you know, all you know is whether the student is picking up a tool or what they're working on, you're not really set up to be strategic. You're not set up to hit your your learning targets, which is of paramount interest for a core curriculum. We are building algebra. We're not building robotics. We're not building a cool uh, project-based learning tool, which is really interesting, but we're building for a core subject, which means teachers have to be set up to hit their benchmarks. Um, And so we want to make sure a couple things are happening. One, that the teacher is constantly cued in to where in the learning process they are, um, how is how are the the understandings translating into uh, fluency and the mathematical objectives of the of the VR um, module? But then, to what extent is our pedagogical arc working? Right. So, did that connection with the interactive accordion model help kids more quickly connect the the math equation and move on to determining the number of weeks from the table? And so, it really provides teachers that that look into where they are in the learning trajectory, um, how are kids using the different affordances to gain um, uh, fluency with the, with the outcomes, um, and how is a teacher set up to use that data because you have 30 kids in headsets, um, you have your synchronous dashboard up, how is a teacher set up to say, okay, 90% of my kids are doing fine, they're on track, they're really able to... Um, independently complete this and collaboratively if it's a, if it's a multiplayer game. Um, so I'm going to focus my, uh, 
feedback on these 5% of, of students who I know are my most vulnerable students, and I'm using their formative assessment data to provide hints. You bring up a really, really good point about not breaking immersion. So um, the, the way that our alert system works is uh, students have their watch and any guidance that a teacher provides can pop up via their their watch so that a, st- a student doesn't have to take off the headset um, and kind of have break their their concentration or their learning. Oh, I remember that. I love that. I Not that I, I'm pretty smart, so I didn't really need a lot of help. <laughs> and Arupa, anything left unsaid that you feel the audience might want to learn about or hear about related to this? Yeah, you know, we're launching our algebra library pilots. So the entire algebra course for everybody who's interested and really wants to co-design with us and help us, um, you know, optimize how we use IVR for learning. And so if anybody who'd be interested in piloting or providing us feedback, um, we're all ears and you should feel free to, to reach out to me. Um, you can look us up at www.prismsvr.com. You can email me directly. Um, but, you know, we we need all the, the feedback and the support we can get as, as, as we try to kind of build a really aspirational learning model uh, using IVR. And so please do reach out if you'd like to pilot. Awesome. I was going to say, how do people get a hold of you? But you've already addressed that. Any other sort of avenues that people can continue the conversation with you about this? Absolutely. You can, you can email me. We're on, we're on, we're on social media, Instagram, Twitter, um, visit our Facebook page. Uh, we're, we've, we're, we're, we're everywhere and, and, and we're very responsive. And um, as a former teacher, 90% of my time really goes into working with educators, co-designing, testing with students. And so that's, that's, that's something that we're really excited about um, and, and interacting with our community a bit. And Arupa, thanks so much for coming on the show. And then more importantly, I think, thanks for taking math learning, which, uh, you know, there probably isn't a lot of people out there as a math student remembering how much they love math. So uh, this new tool and this new technique that you guys are uh, implementing will hopefully bring uh, more love, greater amount of engagement, and of course, most importantly, deeper understanding to math education. Thank you so much, Craig, for having me today. Bye for now.